Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash shop. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Greg Mortimer. Greg is one of Australia's best-known and most highly respected mountaineers. In 1984, he became one of the first two Australians to summit Everest. He later conquered K2, the world's most dangerous mountain, as well as two of the highest peaks in Antarctica. He's a pioneer of Antarctic tourism, and he even has a groundbreaking new ship named in his honour. So it's my pleasure to be talking to Greg Mortimer today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome to you, Greg. You had a wicked gleam in your eye when you said that, Chrissy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the ship thing. I love getting around to talking about how you feel about having a ship named after you. It is a great honour, of course, but it does mean that when you Google Greg Mortimer now on Google, a hundred thousand different hits come up and a lot of them are about the ship and you have to scroll through to find the ones about Greg. But anyway, we'll, t- we'll get to that ship later on because it's yeah. actually a, a really great story and... Uh, and um, also Greg's pioneering of Antarctic tourism is something um, that's really very special and a very special and important part of Greg's life. But um, to begin with, we've just touched on some of your um, uh, pioneering adventures and your mountaineering, but actually you were a founding trustee of the Australian Geographic Society. So how did that come about, Greg? Old mates with Dick Smith. Yeah. And... Howard Whelan, who was editor at the time, was also on our Everest expedition. In fact, he applied for the job to become editor from base camp at the base of Mount Everest when Dick was just starting up Australian Geographic. That's right. He so, got the call, didn't he? Yes, right. <laughs> and he left you there on the mountain to come and run. Yeah, it was probably his own mountain to climb, really, starting a magazine. He like had his this. eyes on that prize. He yes. did indeed. Look, um, it was great. You were on the uh, the board of trustees for many, many years. I know, and in fact, that's where I first met you, uh, mm. probably about twenty years ago. So, um, it's great that we're both still here and still doing the things that we do. Uh, but let's go back to um, Everest and your achievement on Everest the first Australians to summit Everest back in 1984. It was not uh, the kind of Everest summiting expedition that we hear a lot about. It was much more low-key than that, wasn't it? It was a small team. It was a different time of the year. You didn't really have a lot of gear. It's a different type of mountaineering from some of the bigger kind of expeditions that we hear about. Tell me about the difference between your expedition and, say, Hillary's expedition back in the 1950s. Uh, I think you could say that our 84 expedition was more akin to the Hillary era of mountaineering than it is to the modern day in some respects. Mm -hmm. Um, Insofar as 
even by then in the 80s, we knew, knew less about Everest, its vagaries, the weather, and there were still entire um, f huge swathes of it had, that had never been climbed before. And so there was a very great mystery about it, which is somewhat different today. Uh, we know more about the weather and, uh, and as we know, many, many people climb Everest every year. So we were on a different planet at that stage. <laughs> and it was really a pioneering um, ascent, wasn't it? Because you were the first people to access the summit by that route. By the, by the great couloir on the, on the north face. Yes, and that is a large me measure uh, due to our own naivety and uh, the lack of money that we had. Right. <laughs> very, two very powerful forces. <laughs> yes. So we didn't know what we were doing mm. and we didn't have enough money to do mm. it, mm. but did okay. Well, it sounds like a true <laughs> adventure, doesn't it, in that case? Yeah, we made it up as we went along you, somewhat. Yeah, you were a true explorers <laughs> and ahead of your time and pioneering, all those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, no oxygen. Tell us about that. Um, I think these days that doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, it's still, it doesn't happen very much, no. Mm. Um, and harkening back to, to Ed Hillary, of course, and, and Tenzing Norgay, they climbed with Everest with oxygen. Mm. But in, then in the early 80s, uh, two renowned mountaineers, uh, Habler and Mesner, climbed Everest without oxygen. That was an extraordinary breakthrough, a phenomenal Olympic standard breakthrough mm. because we didn't know at that stage whether people could survive on the top of Everest without oxygen, whether they'd blow their brains out, basically, from lack of air. Uh, Mesner and Habler proved that, that it was possible. When we were there... We still didn't know if they were physical freaks or not mm. and what the impact on our bodies and lives would be. Uh, so that underpinned our approach and our feeling um, and our understanding of Everest at the time. Uh, so a different era almost. Mm. Um, and it was a, um, a constant daily spectre on our expedition. So for the best part of six weeks ensconced on Everest, we really never knew how far we could get and which way we should go. And, and literally a daily um, expose and, and a daily um, opening of what our own bodies were capable of doing. And, and and how they would survive, yeah. and they do that in uh, 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 the different effects on different members of the team, I guess. It and, does, and you can't really always kind of work out who's going to be affected. how it's going to be. Mm. Uh, it's it's fickle, mm. and the slightest of malady, like a cold, can you can put you out of out of the game. And and that happened to all of us at various stages throughout the expedition. But you'd have to say that a hallmark of that that entire thing, that entire expedition, was that we had a lot of fun. <laughs> we had a good time. Yeah. It was they were angst-ridden things climbing big mountains because it's dangerous hmm. and and you don't know where you're going necessarily. But we had a lot of fun. Yeah. And and that's that that's really the underpinning of the success of the expedition.
And you were a team of four or five young men, weren't you, in your yes. sort of 20s or yeah, whatever, or early right. 30s or something, going off. And we didn't have Sherpas things. carrying gear. We had mm. Sherpa mates who were down at base camp. and mm. uh, So we did all that ourselves. We didn't want to have um, a team of Sherpas carrying stuff for us. We figured if we were going there on our own volition that we should do the work ourselves. And... Um, and it was, yeah, it, it had its moments. It had, we had big avalanches and, and we had a, a catastrophic loss of a lot of our equipment out in a big avalanche in the middle of the expedition. Mm -hmm. The end product of which was that Tim ultimately went to the top of Everest in his cross-country ski boots. That's right, Tim McCartney Snape. He lost his boots, didn't he? Yeah, they were lost in an avalanche. We never yeah. we dug for days but never found them again. Yeah. And he decided to go on with his cross-country boots. And yeah. That's a testament to his strength. It is. Yeah. What an amazing character. Well, you were all amazing characters and you did have this great camaraderie uh, between you. But actually, in the end, only two of you made it to the top and that was yourself and Tim. Yep. Um, so those decisions, they must be very tough for people to decide to turn around and come back down, but they're very important, aren't they? Yes, but, they are, but they're somewhat self-fulfilling. Um, and again, it's the vagaries of the conditions and individual body responses on the day. There's a good measure of good luck involved, serendipity, if you like. Mm -hmm. And on our appointed summit day... Uh, there were four of us in our summit tent, uh, Tim, Andy, Lincoln and myself. Jeff, Jeff Bartram had stopped a few days earlier because he started to get altitude sickness. On our appointed summit day, Lincoln was really suffering from bad lung problem and had to pull out. So Tim and Andy and I went on that last day towards the summit. And about 80 metres shy of the summit, Andy had to stop and turn away and go back down again. So, yes, you say it was Tim and I on the summit, but to, to us as a group, it, we're all... It was the team. It was all of us. It was a team and, yeah. effort and a team achievement. It perhaps sounds a little corny, but it is very yeah. true. And, of course, Lincoln that you have mentioned is Lincoln Hall. Yes. He eventually did. A few years later. Somewhat later, he, he, he went back and climbed it. The late Lincoln Hall, very much missed yep, mountain indeed. climber. Um, yeah, and so tell us about, uh, by the time you did get to the top, uh, it was night, night was falling, wasn't it? It was getting dark. Yeah. How, <laughs> do you remember, I mean, do you, did you think about it at the time? It was just like, I'm there, I've made it, but now the real work starts because I've got to get down. Or were you able to savour that moment and really enjoy it? I can close my eyes now and see the view. Wow. And that's, that's with me forever. Yeah. Uh, and the day leading up to that moment of stepping on the summit is something of a blur because we were just in 150% focus of putting the next step in the right place. Because we'd also decided earlier on in the expedition on those last days that we wouldn't take any rope. So we were just climbing unroped. Right. Um, so as to go f as fast as possible. Um, and speed is safety in those circumstances. That translates into laser-like focus needed to put the next step correctly so that you get it right. And, and you can do, without oxygen, 
a half a dozen steps before you run into oxygen debt and you have to stop and rest. And all I remember is that grinding six or seven steps throughout the day to a point where there was no more up, basically. Mm. And, and is it clear then when you're on the top? Do you know? There's no markers there or anything, is there? You just... well, no, for us, in our case, there was no one yeah. and no markers, no sign of humanity. Yeah. Um, which is a, is a great treat, of course. Uh, and, yes, it's very obvious, not very big. It's a couple of tabletops right. in size. Uh, so it's very distinct. And the blessed thing is you don't have to keep going up anymore. Mm. <laughs> and did you hang about? Or is it 20 like... minutes. Oh, OK. And did you speak to each other? Did you say things? Yeah, I, yes. We, we mumbled. Yeah. But it's an interesting question because it is a curious thing about well-functioning expeditions in any part of extreme in the world, I think. Those who are on an expedition who know each other well can often go for large periods of time without talking to each other, mm. but understanding the actions of your companions. And it's a delightful state. Mm. Uh, you might speak in grunts occasionally, but you understand the actions and reactions of your companions, mm. which mm. is marvellous, really. Mm. Um, and, and then you turn around and go down again. Yeah. <laughs> And that can often that's be when it. the trouble starts. And with, that's the problem, it's, yeah. it's as dangerous coming down. Uh, if not more so, mm. there's, there's gravity yeah. you're fighting against, there's tiredness, there's the psychological impact of having got to your goal and just going home, you know, turning around the corner to go home. And that's really traditionally where so many people come unstuck, unfortunately. Mm. You can very... It's very hard to keep focus, keep and have kept some charge in the batteries to get back down. And it wasn't all smooth sailing, was it, for you coming back down? We came down in the dark, mm. yeah, because we'd been a bit slow getting up, mm. finding our way on, through the um, summit slopes. And, uh, yes, it was, it was a long, long cold um, otherworldly night, mm. which put us back into our last little haven of a tent at about 8,200, 300 metres, where Lincoln was waiting mm. uh, and arrived there in the early hours of the morning uh, of the following day. Mm. <laughs> and then did you get a chance to really sort of think about, you know, we're... We're out of the, we're, um, out of the danger zone, not, or not really? Not, not yet. really. Then no, no, no. I guess at that stage, the professional side of a climber kicks in. If you like, someone who's climbed a lot knows to maintain the attentions, keep the focus until you're safely at the bottom. Mm. And that, for in my case, was difficult because I was physically beyond what I was capable of at that stage. My battery had got empty mm. and, and was really doing it tough mm. coming down mm. um, and and really was shepherded down by Lincoln. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really not until you get to the bottom that the the joy kicks yeah. in. You can allow yourself yeah. then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let yourself go. Yeah. We'll be back with our conversation with Greg Mortimer after a quick break. 
We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Plus, you'll receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all our products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. We're back with our conversation with Greg Mortimer. You all came back to Sydney and you were hailed as heroes when it was a great um, uh, Australian achievement. But take us back to where it all began um, because, you know, you're an Australian in a country really where the highest mountain in Australia can be reached sort of in a pair of trainers and uh, we don't really have any of those peaks. And when you think about people like Reinhold Messner, I know that you uh, mentioned earlier that, that often the world's great climbers come or you know, hail from places like the Alps mm-hmm. or or whatever, where there are big mountains to climb all around. How does someone in a country like Australia become one of the world's great climbers? What tell us about your journey and how you first began climbing rock faces or mountains? Oh, okay. But I would say, harken back to the naive, the the uh, the quotient of naivety that mm-hmm. goes with Australian mountaineers going to the highest mountains. Um, there, that that was very much. Uh, that was an important part yeah. of our <laughs> flattest continent on the planet, apart from Antarctica, going off to the highest mountains. Mm. Bunch of blokes. Mm. Um, but all of us had climbed a great deal since our childhood, since our teens, early teens. All of us had climbed um, on those beautiful rock climbing and wild places that Australia has. And, the, you know, some of the great rock climbing in the world we have on our doorsteps. And that's because we've got cliffs, is that? Yes. Yeah, there's all those beautiful sandstone cliffs that we know in the Blue Mountains, for example, the escarpments of the Blue Mountains, Mm. and the gorges are throughout the country, Mm. and they turn out to be some of the best available. And so we'd cut our teeth on that. And then not far away, of course, is the Southern Alps of New Zealand. So Mm. also all of us had done our apprenticeship in, in New Zealand, and they're difficult conditions, demanding conditions. And, and New Zealand, not just the Ed Hillary's, but, but many, many more very great mountaineers have come out of New Zealand because they've done their apprenticeship in a, in a difficult environment. Mm. Um, and then all, all of us on the Everest expedition had a number of years of climbing in other big mountains of the world. Um, so... To, to hone in that a bit more detail, I, I was one of those kids who started rock climbing in the Boy Scouts. Right. And and that I liked it so much. Gave Scouts away and just went rock climbing um, obsessively like young people can. And you're, you're, you hail from Sydney originally, from mm. near Bondi, but you were yes. climbing out in the Blue Mountains, as you mentioned. Yes. Beautiful cliff lines that they have there. Now, the Blue Mountains is your home these days. Yes, it is. I live on the western side of the Blue Mountains Yeah. in the Hartley Valley system, which is beautiful, a little yeah. piece of heaven. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just the cliffs. There's all those, those all the gorgeous canyons that the Blue Mountains have and, and all the amazing bushworks, bushwalks in vast areas that um, are a pretty good place to cut your teeth 
into going into the wild. Mm. So in that regard, we're not blessed with the highest mountains, but with wild country. So as this uh, little lad that was starting to, that was in the Boy Scouts, you can see you now with your yeah, uniform dip, dip, dip. on or whatever. Yeah. You had you you weren't the healthiest small boy. You actually had a, a kind of a lung condition when you were small. Did it sort of hold you back, or did it make you more determined to sort of get out and and overcome a, a, a sort of a challenge like that, a personal challenge? Right. Uh, yes, I had a thing called bronchiectasis as a child, which uh, my parents shepherded me through from the age of 10 to 14 or so, um, which meant going and having my lungs washed out um, every week and then a bit longer every month. And the curious result of that was developing a pair of strong lungs, I guess. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, which from a very, very early age had been... Uh, falsely drowned every week and then uh, got strong. Right. <laughs> okay. That's uh, interesting, isn't it? That uh, and and did you outgrow? Is that what happened at fourteen? Is it's one of those things that you outgrew? Or? Uh, no, they, it, I was well treated. Right. Yeah. And uh, and then by fourteen, you were already starting to climb. Yeah. These peaks were calling to you, as it might you might think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Soon. Uh, Yes, as soon as I tried rock climbing, I knew I I liked it a lot. Mm. I liked the combination of um, the the anarchy of it, the um, the combination of physical effort and and use of mind. It's kind of like playing chess uh, in the vertical, if you like. That's fascinating, endlessly fascinating, and also that it's not competing against other people. Not, I'm not really... have never been drawn to competing with other people. It's just competing with yourself, if you like, or testing yourself. Or I can also say that I was graced by liberal parents who let me go. So my mum and dad would let me catch a train up to the Blue Mountains for the weekend when I was 14, stay in a cave on the top of a cliff and come back on Sunday night. Mm. Doesn't happen now, so much these days, That's so. pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think it did happen a bit more. P parents were off doing their own thing, really, weren't they? And they just uh, they didn't worry as much about their children. They worried about them, but I guess they just, I suppose we call it helicopter parenting or whatever you want to call it these days. I think children seemed to have more freedom back then. Uh, and there were no mobile phones, so your parents couldn't, you know, once once you went out the front door on Saturday morning, they didn't really see you till the evening and they didn't really worry about it so much. They probably worried. When I think back now with my own children, I, <laughs> I know that you worry about them, but they let me go. Mm. That's a great gift. Yeah. That's a great gift of love from my mum and dad, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. And to what extent was the beauty of the landscapes that you were um, exploring. Was that, is that also part of it for you, including with the mountaineering? It's uh, fundamental to it. The, uh, the joy that comes from the great wild places anywhere in the world uh, is a treasure to tap into. And it's endless as well, the beauty that comes in wild places. I, can ha I might 
also say that I think as our world becomes, and I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> we love see, a tangent on that, talking Australia. <laughs> given given uh, that we are in an increasingly virtual world of electrons and ones and noughts, I think that's the reason why wild places are more and more important to us because of the uh, discoveries that come from simple human steps into wilderness and, yeah. and what you can learn from that about your primal self and how the great systems at work and how how uh, small we are as individuals in the, in the great powerful forces of the world. This is the end of part one of our interview with Greg Mortimer. Make sure to check out part two. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram, at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia, you'll find special offers for our listeners, including 10% of all products purchased in our e-store. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Mm.